Welcome to the People in the Red Vest, a podcast of the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, the IFRC. I'm your host, Alexandra Sasha Gorishak, and in each episode, we feature inspiring, surprising, and thought-provoking conversations with people who dedicate their lives to helping others. What really inspires me is that we are this enormous network of connected entities that when we really need it, we are very good at coming together and uh, make uh, one plus one give much more than two. And that inspires me every day. My guest today is Birgitte Bischof-Ebersen, the IFRC Regional Director for Europe and Central Asia. Thank you for joining us. Welcome. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. Let's start by talking about the biggest issue that is impacting all of Europe, but probably the entire world, really, the conflict in Ukraine. February 2024 marks a terrible two-year anniversary since the escalation of the Russia-Ukraine international armed conflict. This is perhaps the biggest conflict on the European soil since World War II. How would you describe it from a humanitarian point of view? So that's a very big question and uh, and it involves a lot from my working life and personal life over the last two years uh, where we have been through a massive escalation of the humanitarian operation, both in Ukraine, but also in all the countries that have been uh, receiving refugees from Ukraine since the uh, start of the escalation. From a humanitarian point of view, I, I think that we can see an enormous impact on the socio-economic fabric in Ukraine and, uh, and that people are obviously suffering from that. There has been loads of displacement uh, inside Ukraine and uh, and from a humanitarian perspective it has been really important for us to provide all sorts of support to the national society in Ukraine, the Ukraine Red Cross who have since a very very early start been present all over Ukraine and been helping people uh, at the local level wherever they were. Likewise, there has been an opportunity for the national societies in Europe, or not, it's not right to say an opportunity, but they have been present uh, at the border crossings uh, from the very early start, where people were in thousands moving every day and uh, and been providing first aid and uh, and very simple things like a cup of tea, but also just a listening ear and, and been helping all the way uh, down to Europe where people were traveling in cars, they were walking, they were by train. So it was, it was um, a very big operation that started from a humanitarian perspective, but it was also a, a big strategy for all the, the people that were, were impacted. What we were able to do was a lot because the solidarity Solidarity was so big, and uh, and we were able quite fast to be able to provide cash grants to to people mm-hmm. on the move. We were able to provide uh, psychosocial support through the national societies uh, all over Europe. So it was it was a very big operation, and and now we're in a situation where more than 
well, around six and a half million people are still outside of Ukraine, while uh, the people that are inside Ukraine, uh, many of them are, are living displaced and and I need of humanitarian support. You're talking about the escalation since last February, since two Februarys ago, um, but the conflict between Russia and Ukraine has actually lasted for much longer since 2014. And this is pretty much a pattern that we see in other conflicts that go on for years, even decades. So as a humanitarian organization, we respond to the immediate humanitarian needs and throughout the years, but we also need a strategy, a long-term strategy. How do we go about that? What is that strategy for you in this case? So I think it's a big misunderstanding that the Red Cross, Red Crescent movement uh, is only about humanitarian aid uh, because all national societies and one can refer to the national society in their own country and think that national society is always there. We are there before any crisis, during the crisis, and we will also be there after. And that I think is, is one of the biggest task that we have is to ensure that a national society is always prepared to mm -hmm. uh, to to support during a crisis and that th that preparation is done so well so when it happens there are agreements for example with the uh, with the government so that the roles and responsibilities are, are lined out uh, and also after the crisis uh, we are not any, anywhere close for Ukraine right now. It is becoming what we're calling a protracted situation mm -hmm. where we will have to, at one uh, in one line, we will have to deal with the humanitarian consequences and be able to provide support to people that are affected mm -hmm. by the war that is ongoing or the conflict that is ongoing. At the same time, we are preparing for the longer term because this is, uh, as I said before, the socioeconomic fabric is... is deteriorated. There is a, a big need for rebuilding, for example, the health infrastructure. The psychosocial needs are, are very big. So all of that we are looking at at the same time as, as, uh, as we are providing support on the humanitarian side through the Ukraine Red Corps. As humanitarians, we're often left in this, um, or find ourselves in this difficult position in, you know, an increasingly polarized world of being neutral and impartial. Is that still possible in your view? So I think the position about being neutral is probably more important than ever, mm -hmm. but it is not a a very easy position to have right now. Uh, we have seen many humanitarian donors that are providing with one hand humanitarian aid and that the other one uh, military assistance. And we will have, we always have to find our way uh, into that uh, as we are uh, very keen to remain neutral, impartial, and uh, and with that mandate and that uh, position to be able to be at both sides of a conflict. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the Europe region, for example, is covering many countries, but amongst them both uh, Ukraine and Russia. And for us, it is really important that we can remain 
present in in both those contexts, uh, true our neutrality and and fundamental principles. Mm-hmm. If there's any silver lining in the Ukraine situation, it's possibly the solidarity that we've seen, especially in Europe, uh, both both towards people fleeing Ukraine and those that have been affected by the conflict. How would you? How do you see that? Does that is that a hopeful way of looking at things? I think the solidarity we saw, especially during the first year, was was immense, and it was not only from Europe. It was also coming from really far away. One of the first visits we had here was was from Korea Red Cross, who saw that mm-hmm. separation of a country as something that they could recognize, and they mm-hmm. had like collected a lot of money to uh, to support uh, we have also seen the US and Canada and the UK as being really big donors to uh, to our emergency appeals uh, so so that solidarity has of course been very important for the national societies and their own work in the countries mm-hmm. where they were receiving people from Ukraine but also for our ability to be able to support the national society in country um, so yeah it is uh, it is uh, a silver lining you can say but it is also uh, when we are talking now nearly two years on uh, today we have helped around 18 million people with critical relief assistance as one example of what mm-hmm. that has meant for us to yes. for our ability to uh, to work so at the same time as we talk about solidarity towards refugees from Ukraine we also see some significant and perhaps growing feeling against other people who are coming to Europe seeking refuge. And there's not so much solidarity that we see there. What would you say about this discrepancy? So I think as as Red Cross and Red Crescent societies, it is always important that uh, that we apply the same criteria when we are supporting. I mean, not all support in all countries is the same, but at least we are promoting that it should not have a two-door policy for for people that are coming from from different contexts. Mm -hmm. And I'm always thinking, like, if you are a pregnant uh, woman coming uh, on a migratory route, that pregnancy needs uh, to be dealt with in the same way wherever you are coming from. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very clear example of why it should be like that. We spoke earlier about, um, and we hear this everywhere, There, this year is unprecedented in the number of people going to elections, and that includes Europe. There will be conversations around migration as well, around those elections. What would you, what do you think the, that conversation will perhaps sound like in Europe? Well, I'm always very careful about commenting on these things, but uh, but I think uh, migration is typically a very popular uh, election subject, mm-hmm. and uh, and I'm not naive, and I will expect that that will also be the on the agenda, maybe because we have seen uh, a lot of people arriving and actually contributing to these societies and uh, and the solidarity that we talked about before, maybe the. The conflict in Ukraine and and the refugee flows from Ukraine mm-hmm. might have a, a 
change that uh, topic a little bit, uh, at least in Europe. But mm-hmm. how it goes in the rest of the world, I would not know. From migration, let's move to another big issue, climate change. One common narrative is that Europe um, and more generally the West, the North, uh, has created the problem uh, of climate change. Well, maybe general speaking. And then the greatest impacts are really in the rest of the world. Maybe that's a fair critique, but it's also fair to say that Europe has experienced its own share of climate change effects. Can you talk about climate change from the European perspective, especially thinking about last year? Is there adequate action taken by European countries on climate change, mitigation, adaptation? Most European countries are seeing that climate change is not something just from the textbook. It's actually happening in in real Mm -hmm. life. And we have seen over the last five years uh, a growing impact of climate change in in a very high number of European countries. I think what we can do from a Red Cross and Red Crescent angle is to, to help being prepared for the impacts of climate change. And uh, and we can see a, a larger interest from European mm-hmm. societies in in, uh, in finding out what could be the right thing in in our country to contribute with. And we for that, we have created a, a roadmap in Europe for, for European uh, national societies where we are trying to increase the awareness uh, and and finding ways to engage with the volunteers with the at, at local level and say wh- how can we be supportive if there is a crisis of, of some sort in europe it's very much about floods but very much about what I'm calling the silent killer, the heat. Mm-hmm. The heat waves are enormously dangerous, especially for populations that are already uh, vulnerable. Uh, so people with chronic diseases, the elderly, so they need a, a special attention. And volunteers that are present at local level uh, will often have a very good grip of who who are they mm-hmm. and will be able to uh, to support them and check in on them make sure that they drink enough and uh, and create good spots for mm-hmm. them to be at uh, when when the heat is is on and we have also uh, and that is creating more dramatic images mm-hmm. uh, the the wildfires that we also see in Europe so there is a lot to prepare for and Red Cross and Crescent societies are often a very central player or can be a central player if, again, we mm-hmm. prepare well for the actions that they can take uh, in case of a crisis. So mm-hmm. that auxiliary role that the Red Cross and Crescent societies have in their own countries is is a very key uh, to to activate uh, that during, during crisis. Just a couple of months ago, uh, at the end of 2023, COP28, which is the largest United Nations climate change conference, took place in Dubai. The next one, at the end of this year, COP29, takes place in your region, in Baku, Azerbaijan. Is this an opportunity for a country, which is still heavily reliant on fossil fuels, to actually start a serious conversation about a transition to a greener economy? 
I'm not going to speak for Azerbaijan, but but definitely I see the, uh, the the possibility, and I think there must be a reason why they have decided to be the host, uh, and and I think that it is also an opportunity for uh, the Red Crescent Society mm-hmm. in Azerbaijan, that uh, is as you say part of this region, to to really promote uh, right. also where they see this going and uh, and how they see their role in the climate change agenda. So lots of opportunity in that, as there has been where we have had the COPs mm-hmm. over the, mm-hmm. the last years, where we have seen an increased uh, Red Cross, Red Crescent action around the COP. So I'm looking forward to that. So at one point in your career, you worked at the Danish Red Cross as their international director, and you were also the co-chair of the IFRC Psychosocial Support Center. So obviously, you understand the importance of mental health and psychosocial support in crisis. How would you describe its importance in relation to the more physical support that we offer like shelter, water, food, so the basics. I think since I started in the Danish Red Cross and in in uh, in the Red, Red Cross Red Crescent family, it was always really important for me to to stress that mental health and psychosocial support was needed from the very early on. So I'm not neglecting that shelter is important, that uh, that food and water is of course important, and and that we need to to be able to provide health services or first aid services to people that are experiencing a, a big crisis, but. Nevertheless, uh, the mental health is uh, is oftentimes and uh, for for most uh, people always affected, and uh, when people have gone through really big crises, they they uh, they need something support mm-hmm. to be able to normalize uh, after experiencing people that are dying around them, maybe even their own family or friends, losing livelihoods, losing households. Uh, Everything that is connected to that is affecting our mental health. So therefore, uh, people that have been on the move from Ukraine and people in Ukraine have been in a big need of also receiving services, uh, mental health and psychosocial services. And I'm really proud to say that we have come a long way. And I'm Mm -hmm. uh, happy now to say that in Europe, 34 of the national societies in Europe are providing uh, mental health psychosocial services uh, to to people on the move. And uh, there is a big program also in Ukraine that uh, the Ukraine Red Cross is implementing Mm -hmm. to ensure that people have access to mental health services and psychosocial services. 25 of the national societies in Europe are receiving support from the EU, from the DD Sante program. we're very pleased to see that the mm-hmm. attention has gone from very little to recognizing that this is part of humanitarian support. We're recording this podcast in your offices uh, here in Budapest, uh, and we talked about the big issues. Is there anything else, lesser known things that are happening in Europe and Central Asia for your teams? Well, there's one thing that we haven't talked about that I probably should have mentioned when we talked about what what we have done. And I think one um, 
innovation that I'm really proud of uh, yes. from from our teams that uh, that we have developed through a very critical crisis in in the region is uh, an app uh, it doesn't sound of so much but we developed an app that helped people in many countries in Europe to get access mm -hmm. to cash uh, through a self registration app and uh, and that one we are now uh, taking uh, from Europe level to global level uh, but but what I have seen uh, that uh, app do is to give people wherever they were if it mm -hmm. is what if it was a country where we were able to support wherever they were they could uh, register when it suited them mm -hmm. uh, often it would, was between 9 and 11 in the evening typically mm -hmm. when kids had gone to bed and the right. and the women it was often their mothers that were with mm -hmm. them they would sign up and and ensure that the family could get access to to cash contributions in that mm -hmm. country it was a very localized response as well because you could access it from wherever you had uh, found shelter and uh, and now uh, we can see that that app is also giving us a lot of information about where people are, what their concerns are, mm -hmm. uh, what they're in need of, and it enables enable us to to communicate with stakeholders mm -hmm. in that country, but also globally about those needs, and it allows us to program better for the support that we are giving them. Let's move on to um, a little bit more personal uh, side of this conversation. But before we go there, I'd like to talk to you as a woman leader in the humanitarian world. So as just like other sectors, the humanitarian sector has also struggled with issues of gender equality, equity, inclusion within the ranks specifically of leadership. We have a lot of women in, in the humanitarian world, but most of them are volunteers. So in the case of IFRC and the national societies, what's your take on where things stand with women in leadership positions? What do you think still needs to be done in that area? Well, first, I would say I think we have come quite a f quite far in the IFRC, and that is due to some brave and and quite conscious decisions about women in leadership and women in governance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, for me, it was um, first of all starting here uh, with the IFRC a little bit more than three years ago. I came in like quite high in the ranks as I started as a regional director. I didn't come in blank. I, I mean, I came with a career before me, but uh, but I was really happy to be able to give space also to to other women leaders and uh, and to create the space for for a leadership team that I think is is quite diverse. Uh, and that is for me really important that uh, that the diversity. Uh, is, is key uh, and and of course that we have more or less same number of, uh, of female and male mm -hmm. uh, persons in, in in the management group talking about the IFRC uh, the brave decision that I was talking about was uh, to to introduce de facto a quota for uh, for for the governing board mm -hmm. and that has meant a radical change in the composition of the board that we have now, and uh, and for me, before I, I um, well, as I grew up, 
I uh, I I grew up in a, in a Nordic country. Mm-hmm. I thought that maybe it would not be needed with quota, uh, but I can see the impact of it. And I, I must say that I have changed my mind quite uh, dramatically, mm-hmm. seeing the big impact that you can make in very little time uh, and a very positive one as well. And I think everyone who is part of the governing board feel that it is now a more diverse mm-hmm. board and uh, and. It comes uh, as as is in nature. It comes in in a very uh, yes. you can say country wise very diverse, but now also on the gender mm-hmm. side. Uh, and and I I'm proud to working in in an organization yeah. that has that kind of governing board. The other thing uh, that I think is really important is is diversity in management teams and and the better we mix our management teams, mm-hmm. the better results we will get. Also because we are representing uh, a high number of volunteers, as you talked about, but also communities mm-hmm. that we need to reflect to be able to have uh, a proper dialogue and understanding of, of their needs and, and how we best establish that dialogue with them. So I think it is really important that we also are diverse in, in our composition. You mentioned you grew up in a Nordic country. You come from Denmark. What was your upbringing like? Did you always feel like you wanted to be involved with uh, humanitarian work? How did you get involved with the Danish Red Cross, where I think you came from, right? Well, I've been involved in humanitarian work, I think, throughout my career. But uh, but it was written nowhere that that was going was what <laughs> what was going to happen. I I think the the entry to the humanitarian world was through. Uh, Yeah, it, it was because I spoke Spanish and realized that there was a student job where I could okay. uh, exercise that and, and speak Spanish. So so that was how I started. Uh-huh. I started working in the Danish Refugee Council as a student mm-hmm. okay. and got really into that work uh-huh. and uh, and has never left the sector ever. But, uh, but I have been through a number of organizations now, uh, both the Refugee Council, the UNHCR, and then I uh, eventually started in in the Danish Red Cross and got into that, uh, like, uh, what can you say? I came into the, the Red Cross family yes. from there. Mm-hmm. And you also have a family. Some people say women cannot have it all. Um, is your family with you in Budapest? Yeah, so, but maybe from before, I, I have two daughters and yeah. uh, and when they were growing up i was a disaster management mm-hmm. I, i was heading the disaster management unit in the danish red cross and and uh, you can't have it all i mean of course you have to do in such a role travel a lot mm-hmm. uh, but i've always had a, a husband who also <laughs> believed that that was important mm-hmm. that uh, that i was able to do that and uh, so we have found ways i have also had an understanding family <laughs> so that mm-hmm. we we could count on on our extended family for for uh, for bringing up the kids responsibly, I would say, mm-hmm. even though uh, I had a job like that. Mm-hmm. And now, yes, my family is, uh, or most of my family is with me here. One daughter and my husband and uh, and one daughter is uh, now in Denmark studying. Are they interested in following in your footsteps? You know, I think it's too early to say. I yes. think they're quite proud of what I'm doing. Yeah. At the same time, they don't have any appetite. And I think right now, if you ask them, they're going to stay put somewhere and never travel anywhere. Uh, but they have been around. They have been also in mm-hmm. Cambodia uh, mm-hmm. with us. And uh, we have traveled uh-huh. as a family. So let's see what happens. <laughs> 
you've clearly worked in different parts of the world. Can you tell us a story about an experience or a person that's shaped your perspective or influenced you or inspired you in some ways? Yeah, I think one of the first persons that really made an impression was a woman that worked in Peru where I had my first uh, internship and where I was writing my thesis for, for the university about uh, people that had displaced internally in Peru and were on their way back uh, after I think more than 10 years and uh, and had to find their way in that because the dream about what you left is often not what you find de facto when you're then coming home so that meant a lot to me and there were actually two persons that made a really big impression one was uh, the woman that had accepted to have me in that internship and and I saw her as a, as a really amazing manager and uh, and a very good guide for me in into this world uh, the humanitarian world where she gave just a she took the time and uh, you cannot always expect that but she took the time and and explained like concepts and uh, mm -hmm. and ways of of dealing with the people that we were helping uh, she was of course in the capital city i was out really in in um, i was in a mountain village uh, mm -hmm. or several mountain villages but but she would always have time to listen to me and also uh, give advice on on how you best and most respectfully deal with with these people so she really made an impression and i think the other person that also made an impression there was the uh, a, a man that i in, in his house i i was living uh, also very far away from everything and i realized that when i came and stayed in his uh, annex that that was the first time in all these plus 10 years that he had been staying at home for a longer period of time he'd always been displacing himself to be safe mm -hmm. and uh, and just that risk that he took uh, but he wanted that attention to the situation he wanted mm -hmm. to show what was happening he was working at the university in ayacucho in peru and it was just two really amazing people that i'm always grateful for for having introduced me to humanitarian work in this way I wanted to ask you to tell us something that most people don't know about you, but I know that you also brought something with you. So maybe those two things are connected. Well, not at all. Not at all. Okay. <laughs> then, then tell us first about something about you that most people don't know. I thought when, when I knew that you were going to ask me that, I thought, well, there is something that uh, that people don't know, <laughs> and uh, and it is uh, a little bit spiritual. And mm -hmm. uh, and I had a period of time where, after I had worked uh, overseas for for eight years, I came back to Denmark. I thought, okay, now I'm going to find me a more steady job, doing something else. And I uh, I had some time where I didn't work at all, and uh, and went to this clairvoyant, and uh, and I had a talk with her. And and I said, so could you give me advice uh, mm -hmm. on, on my work life? And we were sitting in front of each other as we are sitting now. And uh, and she said very, very fast. She said, oh, I'm seeing this cross, you know, like a red cross over your head. And I see you working in an office and like 
words like coordination and management and they come up and she says it can all be very symbolic but that is what I'm seeing and I thought okay so <laughs> did you know what to make of it at the time yes because I was thinking I liked uh, what I had been doing but mm-hmm. I also thought maybe I it's time to normalize I mean I was moving mm-hmm. together with my husband and uh, and and thinking about like staying in Denmark and I thought oh, okay but that is probably not what is meant for me uh-huh. and uh, and I could indeed connect to it and it took a few months more and then I was mm-hmm. uh, hired by the Danish Red Cross and the tsunami which uh-huh. brought me into the office to yes. do all these things uh, happened uh, in December of, uh, of 2004. Wow, fascinating. <laughs> so now let's talk about the object that you brought with you. Can you tell us what it is? Uh, show it to us and maybe explain why it's important to you. So this is a rather new object. So it's not something that uh, that I have been having for a long time, but I'm very proud of it. It came to me during the uh, end of year party of uh, 2023, where uh, all the colleagues here mm-hmm. in Budapest had been having votes on uh, the party lion and the person with the best tumor and a lot of other categories that you could get Oscars for. But suddenly I heard my name and that was for the risk taker. And I think that is very uh, important to me because we have been working uh, ever since I came to this office a lot on the risk management Mm -hmm. and how you make good informed decisions that Mm -hmm. is not paralyzing you. And having been through these two years of a lot of decisions, uh, it was important for me that colleagues in the office are seeing that they are taking risk Mm -hmm. to do what I think we are meant to do. So you were recognized actually by your staff Mm. as the risk taker of the year. That's quite an achievement. Yeah. So I'm very proud of that. So this one uh, is standing with me uh, in the office. So in closing, with all that's going on in the world, uh, at the end of the day, who or what inspires you or gives you hope? I think what really inspires me is that we are this enormous network of connected entities that when we really need it, we are very good at coming together and uh, make uh, one plus one give much more than two. And that inspires me every day. And uh, now I'm sitting here in a, in a red vest. And I think the connectivity uh, that that brings when you come to any country, I mean, I can come to Moldova, I can come to Ukraine or or, or visit uh, colleagues in, in Poland, but it will still be, if you come in the Red West, they know yeah. who I am uh, without my name and without uh, necessarily talking a lot about the hierarchy, mm-hmm. but that we we know that uh, that we come with competencies and uh, and and a, like a baggage that enabled us to uh, to work together and that is very inspirational mm-hmm. and uh, and that is not of course for the whole of Europe but it is yeah. a, a global uh, thing that we can apply and and that is uh, inspirational and it is uh, comforting also when you come out at very local level mm-hmm. that that you go into a small office and you meet people from the Red Crescent or the Red Cross that know exactly what we are there to do. Mm-hmm. 
that was going to be my next question. You've already answered it. So the, right. name of the, the name of the podcast is People in the Red Vest, and you're sit for the benefit of the people who can't see us just on the podcast. So the red vest that you're wearing indicates or symbolizes the work of the people uh, in the Red Cross and Red Crescent around the world, as you said. Thank you, Abir Gita for sharing your expertise and your insights and for allowing us to get to know you a little bit. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to People in the Red Vest, a podcast of inspiring stories as told by people from the IFRC. This podcast was produced by Malcolm Lucard and me, Alexandra Sasha Gorishek, with production and engineering support from Damien Naylor. Promotion and marketing by Maxime Bouchard, graphic design by Valentina Shapiro, and web support from Chris Aqua and Patrick Tai. For more inspiring stories, subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts.